Welcome to On Olive Oil, hosted by Curtis Cord, the publisher of Olive Oil Times. Featuring 30-minute discussions with people throughout the world, sharing their unique perspectives on the ever-changing olive oil landscape. This week's guest is the writer, speaker, and authority on Mediterranean cuisines, Nancy Harmon Jenkins. And I have to ask you, which is more important in any chef's kitchen, wine or olive oil? Of course it's olive oil, and they need to know about it. Now, from New York City, here's Curtis Cord. Nancy Harmon Jenkins is a food writer and journalist with a passionate interest in Mediterranean cultures and cuisines. She began writing about food in various parts of the Mediterranean in 1975 and has a long list of publications to her credit, including her newest book, Virgin Territory, Exploring the World of Olive Oil. She joins us today from her home in Maine. Nancy, welcome. Thank you. Nice to be here. You've lived in Spain, France, Italy, Lebanon, and Cyprus, a while in England and Hong Kong. And you said in your marvelous book, my classrooms have been markets, restaurants, farmhouse kitchens, and sidewalk cafes. And my professors have ranged from farmers in their fields and gardens to fishermen on the docks to pushcart vendors of all kinds of street food. There's a lot of great food cultures around the world. What is it about Mediterranean cuisine that drew you in? and continues to inspire you for so many years? Well, what drew me in was the fact that I was there, and I was there by virtue of my former husband, who was a foreign correspondent for various American news outlets. And so we lived and traveled in all of those places. But once there, I realized that this was a place that called to my heart, or my heart called to this place. And that may seem like a curious thing for a girl, girl, yeah, who grew up in Maine, But nonetheless, you know, something about the sunshine, the abundance of delicious food, the grace of the people, and the history, because I've always been very attracted to human history of any kind. And of course, a lot of our history began right there in the Mediterranean, a lot of our cultural history. So all of those things combined. And, you know, the food was so good, the wine was so good, the olive oil. I didn't, if you've read the book, you know, I didn't take to olive oil at first, but very quickly I adapted to it and it became central to my cuisine because it's central to the cuisine of all the countries of the Mediterranean. And Nancy, this is a wonderful book, Virgin Territory. Why did you write this book now? Well, I felt challenged by the fact that a number of things. I knew that, obviously, because all the research has been done, I knew that olive oil was very good for us and that it should be part of a healthy diet. I knew that the Mediterranean-style diet was a very healthy diet, and you couldn't have that without olive oil. But I also knew that it was central to creating all those delicious Mediterranean dishes. And I found an impoverishment of knowledge and experience about olive oil in this country. And I'm afraid that impoverishment still goes on despite my efforts and the efforts of various other people to educate people about olive oil. There's so much resistance to it. So many chefs who think they know about olive oil and continue to send out a little bowl of rancid olive oil for you to dip your bread in while you're perusing the menu. That's what I'm fighting against. Mm. You said you began a futile search for the best olive oil. 
Why is it futile? Because in the end, I don't believe that you can say that such and such is the best olive oil. You know, I go back to another wonderful book about olive oil, Mort Rosenblum's book, um, what is it called? Olives, the Life and Lure of a Noble Fruit. And he talked with uh, Juan Vicente Gomez Moya, who was then the head of the Spanish National Board for Promoting Spanish Olive Oil. And he said, okay, so what's the best olive oil? And Juan Vicente looked at him for a long moment and then said, what's the best cheese? Hmm. What's the best wine? It's an irrelevant question. You can talk about good olive oil and bad olive oil, but you can't say that one olive oil is the best or the olive oil from one region or one country or one variety is the best. It all depends on personal taste, how the olive oil is made, what you're going to use it for. So many factors enter into it. I couldn't agree more. One of the things I love about your book, Nancy, the recipes call for the use of olive oil in quantities that make sense to me. I'm talking about a quarter cup here, a half a cup there. I'm so tired of recipes that include olive oil in teaspoons and tablespoons. Or dribbles or drizzles. As if their inclusion is really more of a formality than anything else. I have never used a measuring spoon for olive oil in my life, and I never will. Well, good for you. I do think that there's, uh, I hate that term, drizzle, a drizzle of <laughs> olive oil. Drizzle a little extra virgin over the top before you send it to the table. I absolutely refuse to use it. I think olive oil, if you're going to use it, you have to use it in quantity. Otherwise, you can't taste it. You know, if you're making a, a complex pasta dish with a lot of flavors going into it and you put a teaspoon of olive oil on the top before you send it to the table, what good does it do? None whatsoever. And yet at the same time, I don't know if you've noticed, but more producers now are fitting their bottles with the so-called tamper-proof pourers that prevent restaurants or anyone else from replacing the oil with another one. But the unintended consequences of the new tops is that it takes half an hour to pour a meaningful amount. It's come to a point that my choice of oil from my cupboard stash might just depend on how much of a hurry I'm in. You're absolutely right. Although I do approve, I approve of this in Italy and in America, these tamper-proof tops for restaurants. I think there's far too much bad oil. You know what happens is they put out a bottle of olive oil and uh, they use up half of it and the rest of it is sitting there on the table in the light and the, and the warm air of the restaurant and it starts to go a little rancid and they take it back to the kitchen and they pour some more good olive oil mm. in on top of it. And of course that immediately picks up the rancid flavor of the of the old olive oil that was in there. Mm. And that's just not a good thing. That's not deliberately trying to deceive the customer. That's just plain ignorance. Mm -hmm. And then there are the people who will take a fancy bottle of a state bottle, Tuscan, blah, 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 and pour into it some uh, mixture of olive oil from Lord knows where and expect the customer to accept it as the estate bottled oil. And that's downright deceptive. You were among the very first writers to take a long, in-depth look at extra virgin olive oils. And this is a food that has been cherished for thousands of years. Who were some of the others who you think began to understand and write about the complexities of this product early on? Well, I mentioned Mort Rosenblum, and he's a good friend of mine, and he certainly has been, uh, I don't know how much attention was ever paid to his book, but it is a wonderful book. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but no. Mort, because he was a, the top foreign correspondent for the Associated Press, was sent from place to place all over the world, and wherever he went, where people were making olive oil, he stopped and he settled down and he asked them how they were making it, why 
why they were making it, what they sold it for, etc., etc. And he also owns his own olive farm down in the south of France. I, I tease him that he's a typical Provencal oil producer because he harvests late, and um, he doesn't. Uh, I, I don't. I mean, his oil is okay, but it's not. For me, as a Tuscan olive oil producer, it's not up to my standards. But nonetheless, he really understands it and he gets it. I think Tom Mueller's book has been very important, even though I think it's done a great deal of damage to the reputation of Italian olive oil, especially. But there's a lot of really, I mean, Tom is a great reporter and there's a lot of really interesting stuff in that book. Most of the other books that I've come into contact with, that I've taken seriously, have been written by people, mostly women, in California about California oil. Peggy Knickerbocker is one of them. And uh, these books are very good and very valuable, but of course they're dealing exclusively with California oil. And to my mind, that's not where the interest is. The interest is in the history and culture of olive oil. And that, for that, you have to go to the Mediterranean. I was surprised to see when I looked recently how early, and I'm talking about the 90s, that Florence Fabricant, for example, at the New York Times began taking a serious look at at the complexities of olive oil in her writing. Well, I think Florence has always, not just with olive oil, but with all kinds of foodstuffs, because especially because she's right there in New York, she has access to a wide range of different qualities in any particular foodstuff, whether we're talking about, um, I don't know, cheddar cheese or a certain wines or olive oil or whatever. And so that helps to educate her. I was astonished when I was working on virgin territory to go back and see how late it was that we began to be concerned about extra virgin olive oil in this country. Mm -hmm. And of course, extra virgin as a definition, is fairly late itself. I think the um, the International Olive Council is celebrating maybe its 50th anniversary this year or next year. So um, they were the ones who set these standards for extra virgin. Before that, it was simply a term that was thrown around very casually, but didn't have any legal credibility at all. Uh, when I went back and looked in the Times, I wrote a story for the Times in, oh gosh, it must have been in the mid to late 80s, about principally about Italian olive oil. And my source for that story was a man named Maurizio Castelli, who uh, was both a, a wine expert and an olive oil expert in Tuscany. And he sat me down at an estate in Tuscany and went through a tasting of different kinds of olive oil. And even though I'd spent all that time in the Mediterranean, and even though I was pretty sure I could tell the difference between a standard Spanish oil and a standard Italian oil, nonetheless, I was astonished at how, how greatly varied the flavors and aromas were in these oils and what Maurizio could lay those to, whether it was variety or method of production or whatever. Mm -hmm. So that was a real eye-opener for me. And then when I went back and looked, I saw that uh, Mimi Sheraton had mentioned olive oil in the early 80s, I think, but sort of in passing. And when you go back to Gourmet Magazine, for instance, you find uh, they, they were talking about an olive oil that was made by, do you remember who Lee Iacocca was? Sure. Yeah, well, Lee Iacocca, apparently, for a while at least, had a farm in Tuscany, and he made olive oil there. And Gourmet Magazine was touting the virtues of this olive oil and saying it was particularly good because it had no cholesterol in it. Well, that was kind of ludicrous when you think about it, because 
olives, after all, are a fruit. Of course, they don't have any cholesterol mm. in them. Before that, it was very scary and sporadic. And there were even articles in Gourmet that talked about, this is uh, during World War II, they talked about so-and-so in Philadelphia finally got a shipment of olive oil. Well, the olive oil, by the time he got it through all the blockades and so forth, was four years old. <laughs> and nobody thought that there was something surprising or undesirable about that oil. It was olive oil from Italy. So there we are. We had on the show Maria Jose San Roman recently, the Spanish chef in Alicante, who I think is among a very select group of high-profile chefs who have taken the time to learn about extra virgin olive oil and what, what it can do. Who else would you include in this elite club of chefs who get it? I think uh, Bill Brewer at the Culinary Institute of America, he's a teacher there. He's uh, maybe head of the, of the culinary department. I'm not sure of that, but he has an amazing palate and he can sit you down with a variety of, let's say, six different foods, maybe some rare uh, roast beef, uh, a plate of beans, um, some tomato sauce, maybe plain pasta or a boiled potato or something like that. And he can show you how the flavors of olive oil, of different kinds of oil, can change your perception of each of those foods. And I know that Maria Jose has, uh, has been a part of that incredible exercise in education that goes on. Unfortunately, I don't think the CIA, Culinary Institute of America, spends anywhere near enough time on olive oil. They spend a lot of time on wine, and they spend very little time on olive oil. And I have to ask you, which is more important in any chef's kitchen, wine or olive oil? Of course, it's olive oil. And they need to know about it. Maria Jose is amazing. And you know, she set herself, when I first met her, she was a great saffron expert, as she still is. Mm. And she said, I just used olive oil in my kitchen because that's what we use in Spain. But I think that it was probably Rosa Vagno from Castillo de Canena who introduced Maria Jose to the idea that olive oil could have enormous variety and could be used in many, many different ways. One of the recipes that Maria Jose introduced me to that I thought was just fabulous was um, to take a fairly ordinary tomato sauce, just made with a little garlic, a little olive oil, maybe a bit of onion and some tomatoes, and then uh, once it's cooked down, beat it until you've got a smooth emulsion, and then beat in a quarter of a cup of raw olive oil, raw mm -hmm. extra virgin olive mm -hmm. oil. And it does extraordinary things to the tomato sauce. But that's not what you asked me. You asked me about chefs and I'm racking my... Uh, that's okay. In <laughs> fact, in, in fact, Maria Jose demonstrated that sauce to us at the event in New York that we produce each April. And you were talking about the CIA, that they don't uh, dedicate much of their time to olive oil. But, you know, no schools do. I mean, no, no cooking schools in this country. Uh, as far as I know, have any kind of program for extra virgin olive oil. Not, not the International Culinary Center in New York, not the culinary schools, uh, many, many around here. I haven't seen one. I haven't received any calls. And uh, we just don't know of any. And that's just surprising. Well, it isn't really surprising when you think that their whole focus really is on French cuisine with an occasional nod to Italy and uh, an even more glancing nod to Spain. They don't seem to realize that anything exists. And, and as far as they're concerned, France is all about butter. Right. If you go back and read Julia Child, for instance, her early earliest book, Mastering the Art of French Cooking, it's just butter, 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 butter <laughs> all the way. Uh, and I don't think Julia had any understanding of olive oil at all. It was that 
that Italian stuff that she <laughs> she pretended because she was very diplomatic to like, but she really didn't. She was a butter babe from the start. You've probably heard about the $60 million food market Anthony Bourdain is building in New York, the way he talks about flying in a guy who makes the best tostadas from a street cart in Ensenada, Mexico, or striking a deal with someone who makes great rice at a stall in Singapore to come to New York and set up shop at the market. Is this the Disneyfication of street food? Oh, I think absolutely. Uh, I think New York is a Disneyfication of food in general, not just Anthony Bourdain. I mean, I think it Italy is the Disneyfication of Italian food. It's turning food into a commodity, uh, uh, not even just a commodity, uh, uh, conspicu a commodity of conspicuous consumption. Mm. Uh, this is one reason I think why chefs like my daughter get so fed up with New York because uh, everybody's looking for what was in the New York Times this morning and nobody cares about what was in the New York Times last week or two weeks ago or what's genuinely good but hasn't been discovered yet. The idea that you can take a person out of Mexico, out of a Mexican street, street scene or out of a Singaporean street scene, transport them to New York and have anything like the same experience is bizarre. It's like transporting certain varieties of fruits and vegetables to California or, or Texas or somewhere and expecting them to taste the way they do in their inherent surroundings. It's just not, not the way it's done. Not to mention that there are likely quite a few very good carts making tostadas in New York. Yes, indeed. And why not search them out and give them credit for uh, for what they're trying to do and boost them a bit rather than, I mean, the idea is so absurd. I just, you know, if I were still practicing regular journalism, I would want to be, I would go find that guy in Mexico and follow him through the entire experience. I think it would be a hilarious article for one of the old food magazines that don't exist any longer either. Or a documentary film. Yes, exactly. That would be terrific. Have you ever seen anyone take as long as Mark Bittman to say goodbye? Oh, please. Did you see what Mimi put up on on uh, Twitter? No, she what's tweeted, the latest? She tweeted about it, and she said exactly the same thing. How much longer is the New York Times going to let Mark Bittman say goodbye? It's you ridiculous. know, when I left the New York Times in 1987, and I published a book a couple of years later, they wouldn't even review it because I was too closely related to the New York Times. It mm. would look like promoting one of our own. Now they're just a big promotion machine for their writers. I can't believe how much space they've given him to say yeah. goodbye. And what is he doing? He's going off to make money. Speaking it's not as though he's going off to feed the hungry in Africa or something like that. No, he's starting a, a food delivery service such as uh, like well, Fresh Direct. Isn't, and it's like Fresh Direct, except with vegetables, I think. Yeah. What do you think about those food delivery services such as the one Bittman started? Have you ever tried one? No, but my daughter uses Fresh Direct in New York and finds it very useful because, you know, she's a hardworking chef in the city. She has a kid and a family at home in Brooklyn, and she finds, first of all, that she can get anything she wants from toilet paper to butter to all. Well, I don't think she buys olive oil from them, but she doesn't need to. But she can get everything she wants and at a quality she appreciates and at a price she can afford. Uh, so for her, it's terrific. I wouldn't use it because I have the time to go out and poke and prod. And, um, you know, I like to go to the, I have a wonderful butcher shop here in Maine. I like to go there and talk about the meat with the butcher. And do you think this cut would be better for this or would it be 
better for that. Someone gave me a gift subscription to the Blue Apron service for a few months. And first of all, I was shocked by the insane amount of packaging that was used. Huh. Most of it was cold packs. So many cold packs in each shipment. And they're very heavy. So I thought of the fuel that was necessary to transport my one Vidalia onion, one little pack of herbs to Provence, a few chicken breasts and fingerling potatoes. And secondly, I thought, do I really need someone to show me how to cook this in a pan or how to make a pizza? Everything was made in a pan on the stove because they can't assume that anyone has a grill. What it comes down to, I think, is first of all, the ingredients. On an average night at your Tuscan home, a night when you're not preparing for a photo shoot, and I love the images in your book, by the way. Oh, thanks. That's a wonderful, that's Penny de los Santos. She's so gifted. Where do you go to gather the ingredients for the evening meal? I go to the cantina behind the kitchen, and there I'll find pasta, I'll find canned tomatoes, or tomatoes that we've put up ourselves. Uh, you know, we've always got plenty of olive oil. We've always got a hunk of Parmigiano-Reggiano. Uh, we usually have some dried mushrooms, salt and pepper. We have rosemary and thyme and uh, various other herbs growing in the garden right outside the kitchen door. So what more do you need? Uh, I mean, if we're, if we're hungry for meat and we don't have any meat in the house, we make do without it because we are, in fact, 20 kilometers over a very twisting mountain road from the nearest good meat market. And in Camden, how is your shopping different in the States? Well, the, uh, the one big difference is right now in Maine, I have a frozen parsley plant on my front steps and nothing else <laughs> fresh at all. But I can find very good quality. I can find very good quality meat. Of course, superb seafood. The Maine sea scallops that are in season right now are fabulous. Just flashed in a pan with a little olive oil. They're just delicious. I can find good cheeses. I use my own olive oil almost exclusively. It's the produce that's the problem. The produce is the problem. And today I'll be going, after I finish talking with you, I'll be going to the Winter Farmer's Market in Belfast. And there I'll probably find some greenhouse greens that will cost me as much as a <laughs> T-bone steak. Right. And that's it. You know, otherwise it's carrots and turnips and beets and, you know, stored vegetables. And it will be that way for another three months at least. When I'm in New York, I can find any ingredient I can imagine for a recipe. But near my home in Rhode Island, as I'm sure it is for most people, I have little chance of finding at my crappy local supermarket a Sicilian Taraco blood orange for your Sicilian orange and red onion salad. Or well, or That's such a wonderful recipe, but I have made it with Florida oranges. Or harissa for your carrots and chickpeas and chamula sauce. Can we make Mediterranean meals in small town USA? Yes, absolutely. It just takes a little... Uh, you know, it takes a little thought. It doesn't take Blue Apron or Fresh Direct or, or Mark Bittman's group to do it. Um, and you do have to eat according to the seasons. You know, you can't make a good eggplant dish in Maine or Rhode Island in January and February because the, the eggplants aren't going to be any good at all. Mm. And that's why uh, in the other book that I published last year, which we haven't mentioned, The Four Seasons of Pasta, which I wrote with my daughter, um, we talk about the seasonality of pasta and the fact that these eggplant dishes really belong in the summertime. And right now we're talking about squashes and onions and, oh, wonderful winter greens. You know, the uh, Tuscan kale, Lachinato kale. I love that. Mm. Uh, and there's plenty of that around. 
it takes good farmers and farmers are as conservative as fishermen when you try to get them to change their habits. But you can, by steady insistence, get them to see that these winter vegetables that are customary in Mediterranean countries, it's also possible to grow them here in the Northeast and there's a market for them. Speaking of farmers changing their ways, I was just amazed, and by the way, I just adore your book, and especially the beginning of it, when you're talking about your own experiences there in Tuscany. And I was just amazed to read some of the methods that farmers used in your area to make their oil. For example, letting the olives sit for months before pressing. Right. So they they weighed less when they were brought to the mill where they paid by the pound, and because they thought it yielded a better oil. But we thought nothing of the lousy coffee we drank for generations until someone invented Starbucks. How have things changed in your little region in recent years, or haven't they? Well, one of the biggest changes has been the fact that everybody's planting olives. When I I started planting olives, probably, I think my trees now are about 12 or 15 years old. And when I planted them, everybody said, oh my God, there she goes again, you know, that foreign senora uh, doing something that's totally unacceptable because we're up at about 700 meters. So we're really at what was traditionally thought was the upper limits of olive cultivation. Mm. And nobody, everybody had a half a dozen trees and everybody made a very little amount of oil, but nobody did it seriously. So I planted 150 trees and it's true, the boar came in and they knocked over a couple of trees and I lost three or four to uh, cold winters that first, the first couple of years. But they've thrived and now my neighbor has planted olives and the guy up on the hill who is most cynical of all has planted olives and everybody's getting into it. So they've gone from being these crusty old farmers saving their olives for three or four weeks before they take them to the mill to somebody who actually plants more trees, gets out there, harvests early, gets the olives to the mill as quickly as they can and presses them as quickly as they can. And that's another big change that's taken place is the change in technology, this whole continuous cycle method of of producing oil. And, you know, I love traditions, but I think... Nothing has improved the quality of olive oil more than the widespread adoption of continuous cycle stainless steel uh, methods of of, uh, extracting the oil because it's so clean and it's so fast and everything happens away from contamination by light and heat and the cigarette smoke that is no longer allowed in my olive mill, but used to be, you know, kind of a, a, a cloud of cigarette smoke everywhere, fragrancing the olive oil. So all of those things have changed uh, enormously. And I think people are now very proud of the olive oil they produce, whereas before it was just something that they kind of did because their grandfathers had done it. Finding great olive oil to use in one's dishes has never been easy. But let's face it, Tuscans and the rest of the world have gotten by for a long, long time with average oil at best. In fact, as you mentioned, even in the work of Ansel Keys and the longevity studies of the so-called blue zones were during a time when no one produced what is now considered to be high-quality olive oil. So getting back to the gathering of the necessary ingredients for a Mediterranean meal, is it really necessary to have a $40 bottle of oil in your pantry? I think it's necessary. I think, first of all, I just did an article for Zester Daily about the uh, new oils that are coming in from the Mediterranean right now, the fresh harvest oils. 
And I know they're very expensive, but I recommend that if you're really interested in olive oil, you should invest in at least one bottle so that you'll know what high-quality oil tastes like. And I do think $40 a bottle, yeah, I'm not going to deep-fry chicken wings in $40 a bottle olive oil, but I am going to use it in a lot of my cooking, and I'm certainly going to use it in my garnishing, not by the dribble, but by the quarter cup. I'm certainly going to use it on my salads, and I'm certainly going to use it to understand what the bottom line, or maybe I should say what the top line is in terms of quality. I think it's very important to understand that. You know, I like to use the analogy with um, uh, something like making a boeuf bourguignon, for instance. You're not going to use your finest burgundy that costs 40 to $60 a bottle to dump into a beef stew. But you're going to use the best quality red wine, preferably from that region, that you can afford. And then you're going to serve the 40 to $60 a bottle of wine uh, in glasses for your guests to enjoy along with the beef stew. So the same thing goes with olive oil. You're not necessarily going to use that $40 a bottle oil for everything. But where it counts, you're going to be able to, certainly going to be able to tell the difference between that and colavita. I'm sure sure near Camden, there's a shop that sells bulk olive oil from yes. Fusti. I know there's one in Rockland. Have you been to it? Yes. In fact, I've worked fairly closely with Pat O'Brien, who's the um, uh, co-owner with his wife of that shop. I am of two minds about those shops. I think in some cases, and in that case particularly, the people who own it are very well educated. They have educated themselves about olive oil and they know what they're doing. I do not recommend their flavored oils any more than I recommend their flavored balsamic vinegars. But as far as going in and tasting a bunch of different oils from different parts of the world made from different varieties of olives, I think it can be a good educational tool for people to use. I don't usually buy oil from them because I don't simply because I don't have to. I think you have to have a few reservations about those places and clearly there are some of those places where people are much less educated and they're just selling olive oil because it's the uh, it's the chic thing to do these days. Almost all of them that I've seen seem to be made up of usually a husband and wife team. Husband has retired from a high-powered job and they've decided to do something else with the rest of their lives and so they they think gosh wouldn't it be fun to sell olive oil and so they do. And sometimes they make a success of it, and sometimes they don't. In this case, he's made a terrific success of it. I don't know how much of an impact he's had on the way people in Maine think about olive oil, but I encourage people to go in there and taste. My one objection to it is that there is often the assumption that somehow the owners have gone out and personally selected these oils. And you know as well as I do that they all come from a warehouse in Oakland, California, and are selected by somebody else. Not all of them, but many of them. So there's a slight marketing deception going on in some of these places that I object to, but it's not serious enough for me to get too exercised about it. Another way people might be able to source good olive oil is online, which can mean spending easily 80 or $100 per liter. Is it worth it? Yes, I think it is. I think some of these online shops, and I think I mean, there are several that I mention frequently. Unfortunately, most of them seem to deal exclusively with Italian olive oil. I'm thinking of Gustiamo.com and Olio2Go.com, exclusively Italian. But there's also Market Hall Foods in Oakland, MarketHallFoods.com, mm -hmm. which has oil from all over the world. And especially, it's a good source for 
for high-quality California oils. And, of course, Zingerman's Deli in Ann Arbor, Michigan. These are all places that um, I am certain that these people have personally selected the oils, that they've worked with the producers, that they know the quality of what they've got. And if you buy an oil from them and it isn't up to quality, you can send it back because they stand by what they produce. So that's one reason why I think it's good to deal with people like that. The only problem, of course, is unless you go into the shop, which you can't really do at Gustiamo, but you can at the other three, you can't really taste the oil. But if you go, I mean, if you go to um, Market Hall Foods in Oakland, they often have a half dozen oils out for people to taste. And they don't just put those oils back in the bottle at the end of the day. They take them to the kitchen and they use them in their prepared foods. So every day there's fresh oil from a freshly opened bottle out for people to taste and assess and and, uh, compare and decide which one they want to buy. That's a very useful thing for a shop to do. Imagining for a moment that I didn't have what just might be the world's largest collection of high quality olive oils, I think I would probably adopt the strategy of choosing one producer somewhere in the world each year around this time during the harvest and flying in two cases to last me until the next harvest. I'd probably pay about $10 a bottle. So for the 24 bottles, it might be $500 uh, to ship by air for an average cost of about $30 a bottle. Or I could try sending it by ocean, which would cost far less. The problem is, and will always be, the shipping for those of us here in the States. Either you pay the producer directly and ship it yourself, or you pay a handsome fee to distributors and retailers to do it for you. Do you know of any better way? Well, I'll tell you one of the great revelations for me in the last couple of years. We used to have this problem because we don't produce a lot of oil. The most we've ever produced in a single harvest is 120 liters. That was a couple of years ago. Hmm. Um, We like to ship back to this country at least 50 to 60 of those liters. We pack them in three or five liter tins. We pack them ourselves and we take them to Mailboxes, Inc., in the town of Bertole in Tuscany. And they will send that oil for an astonishingly low price. I mean, I think we pay $100. We ship it to Sarah's restaurant in New York, and then she subdivides it, ships some to her brother and some to me in Maine, and keeps the rest to serve in the restaurant. You pay $100, you said? $100, maybe $120. It depends on the... Uh, So it's almost worth your hopping in a plane and flying to your favorite (laughs) producer and getting it that way. I always used to wonder why it is that, that more producers of high quality oil don't ship in bulk, that is in a bulk container of oil, and have an arrangement to have it bottled over here. Because the idea that you're paying all that money to ship glass bottles across the Atlantic is just, it's repugnant to me. But nobody seems willing to do it, and I suppose it's because they don't trust what happens on the other side. Virgin Territory is much more than a cookbook. It's an autobiographical lesson in olive oil and a handbook that will serve as a reference for years to come, I think. How have people responded so far? Well, I've had very, very positive responses. The sales have not been high, which surprised me. And I'm glad to hear you say that it's more than a cookbook. I had certain disputes with my editor over that, who kept insisting it is indeed a cookbook. But to me, the most important part is the all the introductory material before you get to the recipes, mm-hmm. because that's where you really learn about olive oil. You learn how to buy 
buy it, you learn how to use it, you learn what the health aspects are of it, and you learn how and why good oil is made the way it is. So that's been terrific. Um, the uh, public response has been terrific. But I, you know, I hear people going on NPR and talking about olive oil, and I think, why didn't they call me? And they didn't call me because at NPR in Washington, they don't know who I am. <laughs> so uh, that part of it has been a mystery to me. But I'll keep out there plugging for olive oil because I do think it's one of the most important ingredients in our kitchens, if not the most important ingredient, maybe not as important as salt, but close to it. And I do think we are deeply, deeply ignorant of what quality is and how to determine it. The book from Nancy Harmon Jenkins is Virgin Territory, Exploring the World of Olive Oil. Get it on Amazon, where it's getting rave reviews. Nancy, thank you for the great book and an interesting discussion today. Thanks so much, Curtis. It was good to talk with you. On Olive Oil is produced in New York by Olive Oil Times, the world's leading olive oil publication. To listen to past episodes, visit onoliveoil.com.